You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. Episode 5, The Women Preachers. On this episode, more on Emmanuel Church of Christ in the American South and its notable history of female pastors and preachers. Plus, Emmanuel's founder and matriarch, Bishop Overseer Nina Mae Pierce, how she fought off the men in her church who thought they knew better, and how the assembly has changed since her death. Also, later this episode, I'll include a fascinating introduction to the life and ministry of one of Nina's most famous and successful contemporaries. Let's get into it. Read this one for me. Here, Dr. W.A. Medor. That's him. That's Pastor. him. Here again, former Emmanuel Church member Sharon K. Edwards, reading from various newspapers and documents that I've dug up during my research. I couldn't wait to tell her more about what I've found out about Nina's professional separation and eventual divorce from her third husband, Colonel Walter A. Wood Medor. That's, that's him. Yeah, that's him. Back in episode two, we tracked them up until about 1942, when suddenly Walter was no longer a part of the assembly, nor was his church, First Emmanuel. And this shift is most notable at the annual General Assembly that year, where for the first time ever in Emmanuel history, Nina does not elect Walter onto the Board of Elders. And he'd always held a very prominent role up until then. So, what the heck happened? Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law said. Sharon's reading from a newspaper ad promoting a sermon at Walter's church. In this article, he's inviting the public to come hear him preach the biblical truth when it comes to a woman's role in the church. Ye shall know the truth. Where in the Bible is authority for a priestess, woman pastor and teacher, bishop, overseer, or apostle? Demand, chapter and verse, not not presumptions. The ad lists several scriptures that Elder Medor would be using that Sunday to back up his message that women should pretty much shut up and stay in the pews. 1 Corinthians 14.34 
Numbers 18.7, 1 Timothy 2.11. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, in love, and sanctity with self-restraint. I just want to like curl. (laughs) That particular scripture is interesting because she never had children. Yeah. It feels like a slag when you know. So yeah, at this point in my research, items like this and, you know, little bones of information that I've been thrown off the record, they've all led me to believe that the reason behind Walter leaving Emmanuel and taking his church and whoever wanted to follow with him The reason for this seems to be linked to the fact that he did harbor these misogynistic and harmful attitudes towards women in the church. And these beliefs were, of course, conflicting with the culture of Emmanuel, an assembly where women were very much setting the tone, where women had authority, where a woman could preach, teach, lead, and even complain and demand change. And Walter? Walter just got sick of it. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Ooh, just even reading that, like, gives me, like, pops. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll start over. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. What I don't know, and it's still killing me, is Walter's thought process. How did he go from being the kind of man who pretty much gave up his life to assist Nina, his wife, to assist her in her ministry? How did he go from that guy to someone who was preaching about women being entirely submissive? Or maybe he was never submissive, and he finally lost hope that he'd ever truly take charge. I mean, how do you go from being supportive to... To just abandoning it and being like, nope. And breaking apart the church. Yeah. Breaking apart and dividing everything that you've built. Mm -hmm. I mean, who's to say, maybe he didn't have a change of heart. Maybe she changed. Maybe all the power and the glory and the furs and the limos Mm -hmm. all got to her. She wouldn't be the first one that power corrupted. Yeah, and also, it can't be easy to be married to a woman like Nina, right? Right. A woman who was truly pushing the boundaries of appropriateness at every turn. A woman who commanded a room and had thousands of followers. Yeah, I mean, and especially, I mean, that's hard on on a man in the South today. Like, it's still, who wears the pants in your family? Like, those, that's something that's said even today. Or, um, oh, he's henpecked. People still say those things today. But I can't stress enough that Nina, to me anyway, is coming off as a real handful 
for Walter or any man that tried to take her on. And believe me, during her reign, in her lifetime, lots of them did. She ruled all the pastors and would move them and place them. At one time, they controlled all the properties. Sharon is now reading from one of the few stories I've seen shared about Emmanuel online, in an online forum called the Apostolic Friends Forum. My pastor, who is never accustomed to shucking someone's corn, shucked her corn at Columbia at an anniversary service when I was a boy. The person who shared this story did not respond when I reached out for an interview. But from what I gather, he was a kid in Emmanuel during that period of time shortly after Walter left. And he paints the picture of an almost, like an almost West Side Story sort of rumble. She came in all dolled up with her dolled up bunch, and hogs got butchered that night. I'm sure she never forgot it. She had taken several folks out to that assembly and was coming, I guess, to get some more. She got it all right, but not what she came for. Oh, my goodness. So this is all, like, connected to this period of time where there was the split in the church mm-hmm. with, with Walter leaving and stuff. And I've just found lots of evidence over that period of time. There really was, like, this massive jockeying for position. Are you going with Nina in the main part of the church? Are you leaving with Walter? There were other men who spoke up against her and tried, because according to this guy, she would show up at the church and try to recruit all their people and steal them. Wow. cannot solve all of his problems, Mrs. Nana Midor, General Overseer of the Manual Churches of Christ, told delegates yesterday from four states, there will be a time when all of us must give an account to God, she said. Many people look to man for many different things, but there will be a time when everyone must turn to God. Mrs. Meter, who lives at Good Lord Jesus, I swanny. They kill me with these addresses. Mrs. Meter, who lives at 3831 Gallatin Road, delivered the opening address of the two-day meeting. 3831 Gallatin Road. Census records show that Nina and Walter lived together in this home 
for several more years, even after their churches separated. And I'm left to believe that their relationship remained at least partially amicable because I'm still seeing them taking trips together. I don't know if it was a vacation or a missions trip or whatever, but I did find them taking at least one international trip together during this period of time. Yeah, I also had them during their marriage um, going to Cuba, flying home from Cuba. I found a flight, a flight record. So it's possible they just had some money and went on a vacation. Had a vacation. Well, of course they had a money. Both of them's pastors. Yeah. And they got to take up that offering. I, I, oh, look, touch your screen. I think you need to sow a $5,000 seed, I believe, right now. The Lord, <laughs> the Lord is calling us to Cuba. Lord's calling us to go drink some Mai Tais on the beach. See me to Mai Tais. <laughs> <laughs> but a Toyota should have bought a Hyundai. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So by 1947, Nina and Walter move out of 3831 Gallatin Road and appear to be officially going their separate ways, personally. This would be Nina's third divorce. But honestly, Walter leaving the church from right off the bat in 42. This is when we see Nina truly take front and center stage as the bishop overseer of Emmanuel Church of Christ. Gone are the days where her accolades are followed up by mentions of her husband, from then on, this is when Nina really starts rocking up in those fancy fur coats and chauffeured limousines as Emmanuel continued to grow, with more and more churches being planted in Tennessee, in Kentucky, in Alabama. And that meant more and more membership fees and income from tithing, money that Nina was able to put back into her traveling ministry as she regularly left town to host her wildly successful revival meetings. And I found her going up and down the West Coast and Mexico. I mean, maybe that's what they were doing in Cuba. I can't confirm, but I do know she went to Jamaica. Mrs. Nina Pierce, overseer of Emmanuel Churches of Christ, will return to her pulpit, 522 Woodland Street, Sunday morning, May 1st, after a brief missionary trip to Jamaica. We extend a special invitation for everyone to attend these special services. Now, see, that's poor writing. Why would you use special twice in the same sentence? Exactly. That's, that was my point. <laughs> and especially through the 40s, and starting pretty much immediately after Walter was off the Board of Elders, we now see Nina's face plastered all over the newspapers, way more than before, like a queen. These glamorous and very appealing headshots that sometimes would take up a quarter of a newspaper page, alongside these warm invitations to come hear a woman preach the gospel. Now, I will bring it home that historically, the Pentecostal church in general, the Pentecostal revival circuit especially, has been fairly supportive of female preachers since its inception in the late 1900s. This also includes a willingness way beyond that of other churches to put little girls up on stage, little girls singing, little girls prophesying, preaching, and having their individual worship 
you know, behaviors put on display. And I mean, really, it, it does tie back into the whole period of, of tent revivals and, and it being a business and people making money. So what they found is if some nine-year-old girl could draw a bigger crowd than a 35-year-old man, see you later, man, yeah. we're, we're going with this little one. This was really evident as I poured over old newspaper archives during my research, and I'd come across ads like this. Coming, Renee, six-year-old gospel singing sensation, and her party at the Dixie Tabernacle. Oh my God, that's a sweet little face. Isn't it? I just, oh man, I'd love to hear what she sounded like. She must have been great. You know she just had some big old voice too. Oh, for sure, for sure. Read this on the main line. Tell him what you want. And this Pentecostal culture of putting little girls up on stage during services, it played out in Sharon's life too. Okay, so you grew up around gospel music and, and a lot of music. How old were you personally when you realized that you could sing? You could sing. Uh, sang with an A, yes. Um, no, I was probably three. When I was singing, yes, I know. <laughs> I was probably three when my sister and I, we were singing. There was this Happy Goodman song. And I can vividly recall the mic stand. You know, when you twist the mic stand thing and it goes all the way down. So it was all the way down. And then the, the mic and the mic holder was tilted as far as it would go. And I was still standing with my neck raised up trying to reach it. That's how short I was. So literally a toddler standing on stage singing. And my sister and I, we sang this song called We Are Happy People. <laughs> yes, I know why we sang it, because it had a line about being baptized in Jesus' name. So it said, um, we are happy people, yes, we are. We are happy people, yes, we are. Been baptized in Jesus' name, spoke in tongues in the Holy Ghost. <laughs> we are happy people, yes, we are. Yes, that's what it said. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And you got these two little toddlers. My sister's a year and a half older than I am. And so we were up there singing it. I vividly recall that. And then I, it, it was my normal, the way that breathing is your normal. Like, it just was what it was. My parents were in a group. They traveled around. They were called the Pentecostal Witnesses. And so, yeah, they'd call us up to sing when they wanted to take their little break. And this openness to having girls and women be an active part of service, this literally set the stage for Sharon to eventually become the first woman to wear pants at Emmanuel's Shelbyville Church. I was playing the drums. And how are you going to straddle that snare in a skirt? As I've mentioned previously this season, 
there are varying levels of strictness for women and girls when it comes to dress. My experience in 1990s Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada was definitely that, yes, we could and did wear pants, but we were expected to wear skirts or dresses on Sundays, and skirts were 100% mandatory when it came to our uniforms at my Pentecostal Christian school. And I'll never forget the specific rule about the uniform skirts. And that's that they had to be six inches below the knee when standing. And that's because if boys saw our knees, it might give them sexual feelings. And it was our responsibility as girls to make sure that didn't happen. But it was weird because outside of church, outside of school, I would totally wear short skirts and shorts, let boys see my knees, knowing the power I had over them when I did. Sharon calls this, and it's so on point, she calls it the great pretending, where we would all behave one way in church, but outside of church, we act a whole other way. And for Sharon, the great pretending was most at play for her in the summer, when all the Emmanuel girls would bring skirts to youth camp in Lebanon. Wear them the whole week long, wear skirts all week long, and pretend that that's how we live all the time, when it's not. And so it really teaches us how to be hypocrites. Hypocrisy 101. Let's go to church camp and pretend we wear skirts all the time. Um, Mrs. Ethel Stone, Mrs. Virginia Lester, Mrs. Mabel Braswell. Sharon's reading the names of the women on Emmanuel's 1933 founding document. Mrs. Al Paris, Mrs. Will McCooley, Mrs. Bertie Mae Banks, oh my goodness, Mrs. Elizabeth Scruggs. These women are some of Nina's earliest known followers who all, in their own individual ways, helped build this assembly. An assembly that was not only led by a woman, but guided by this undercurrent of female empowerment that gave them the permission and space to do things that most Christian women in other churches wouldn't have dreamed of. Mrs. Esther Tones, Mrs. Bertha Woodson, Mrs. Annie Morrow, Miss Elsie Keaton, Sister Elsie B. Keaton. She's a great example of this. She was an Emmanuel preacher who, by the 1960s, had her very own weekly gospel radio show. Yes, she did, on WTMT in Louisville, Tennessee. Radio, you know, in the beginning, radio had had a number of programs. It wasn't genre-based like it is now. Please welcome gospel historian Don Cusick for a brief explanation on the evolution and popularity of gospel radio. You know, in the Great Depression, you couldn't couldn't afford to go out to um, to uh, uh, someplace and and, uh, and enjoy a concert. You had to, you know, it's home entertainment, and so that radio became the major way that southern gospel and country music was heard. Of course, pop music dominated, but you know, the other thing about radio. It was like television today. It had 
it had drama shows, it had comedy shows. But in terms of, of, of Southern gospel and country, that was geared to a, a Saturday night audience that couldn't, you couldn't afford to go out. And it let that music spread, because you know, you could hear it for miles and miles. And then of course, late night, uh, the ionosphere contracts and, and those AM waves can bounce off. And so you could hear stuff, you know, 100,000 miles away. Now, as much as we're here to explore Emmanuel specifically, I want to right now take a wonderfully insightful little sidestep as I introduce you to Amy Semple McPherson. Sister Amy was herself a female Pentecostal preacher with her own gospel radio show. And during the 1920s and 30s, she would use the power of media to become one of the most well-known revivalists in America. She was 100% Nina's most successful contemporary. And for that reason, I think learning about her life and ministry and hearing her preach will help us better understand the world and time that our main subjects were living in. Amy Semple McPherson. She was a fascinating, complicated, and extremely theatrical woman. I'm going to bow my head, and I want you to bow your head over radio. And I believe the divine healing, soul-saving, quickening power of God is able, abundantly able, to make you whole. Shall we pray? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ... Born in 1890... Sister Amy would famously grow up to become the enigmatic founder of the Foursquare Church, a Pentecostal denomination that in 2021 reported a global congregation of more than 8.8 million people. And the success and potential of her ministry was evident very early on, as record-breaking crowds in the tens of thousands regularly gathered to hear her preach and speak in tongues and maybe get a healing. Thou who didst answer the prayers of men through the ages, so that mighty miracles have been wrought through fire and water. Eventually, in 1923, Sister Amy's success allowed her the means and connections to build her own temple in Los Angeles, a sort of four square headquarters called the Angelus Temple. After all of these years, they've come to crown our labors, beautiful Angelus Temple. This magnificent building, the largest seating capacity church in the American continent, where we have 16,000 members, a Sunday school of 4,500 children, 800 branch churches, and the work spreading. Today, with its thousands of loving friends... The Angelus Temple was originally a 5,300-seater with a 125-foot-wide dome, the largest dome in North America at the time. And... It's considered by many to be the first, what we would call today, megachurch in America. The moment the two frogs were in the milk can, one said to the other, well, this is... Amy Semple McPherson is kind of exhibit A for the North American Pentecostal movement. Once again, Professor Emeritus of Pastoral Theology at Wycliffe College in Toronto, 
David Reed. She just was irrepressible in many ways. Uh, she was not going to be put down by men who said, you know, you were not called. So she had to start her own church and was extremely effective. Slid over into the theatrics a little bit in Los Angeles. Totally. Amy Semple McPherson was known for staging dramatic scenes to bring home her message. She used elaborate props and costumes and frequently brought animals up on stage with her. One time there was a man, a farmer, who used to water his milk. At the end of every day, he would go down and take a bucket to the spring, fill it with water, and pour it in his milk. I could add an anecdote on her. You can use it somewhere along the line. Thank you. Uh, the Society for Pentecostal Studies is an academic society. Professor Reed tells me something he recalls Amy Semple McPherson's daughter saying about her mother after her death. And she said, what you need to know about my mother is that you think that she was just about theatrics. She wasn't. Her faith and her, her burning passion for the gospel, as they would say, was so strong that she said, even if she lost everything, financially and every other way, she would manage to get an old car and make up some flyers. And she would just go up and down those country roads, putting flyers in people's mailboxes, talking to people wherever and getting a church started. That was where her deepest passion was. And I have to say that I understand that. And I understand that that's where she was. She was not simply a religious theatrics person near Hollywood. And I remember, she said, when it came, comes to the media, uh, thinking about my mother, they would just talk about all her, her skills in, in publicity and all of that. And that after the, the scandal that she went through, you know, she would, uh, she kind of lost a, a lot of that. The scandal, yeah. Because, honestly, so very few of these extremely high-profile evangelical preachers don't have at least one. In Sister Amy's case, her scandal involved being accused of carrying out an elaborate hoax. It all started on May 18, 1926, when suddenly, Amy, one of the most famous female evangelists in the country disappeared while at a beach in Santa Monica. She was originally believed to have drowned. But five weeks later, towards the end of June, three days after her memorial service, Amy Semple McPherson showed up in an Arizona hospital with an unbelievable story. McPherson said that at the beach, she had been approached by a couple who wanted her to pray over their sick child. After walking with them to their car, she was shoved aside. A cloth laced with a drug was held against her face, causing her to pass out. Eventually, she was moved to a shack in the Mexican desert. But she escaped. Well, that's dramatic. That sounds like a movie. She told police that she endured an 11 to 17 hour trek through the Mexican desert before she collapsed near a house in the border town of Sonora. That's where somebody found her and took her to the hospital. When asked about the absence of a sunburn, <laughs> when asked about the absence of a sunburn, 
from the sweltering heat and blistering sun in her long tramp over the desert country. The evangelist told how while she was fleeing her captors, she pulled her outer dress over her head, forming a sunbonnet like they used to do in Canada. Well, okay. So was she Canadian? She was actually originally Canadian. Yeah, she's from Ontario. Era, but- holy hell, it's fucking full circle. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Always comes back to Canada, doesn't it? Okay. Woo, I'll tell you what, we're just closing that circle. Now, despite this alleged ordeal, Sister Amy was back at her pulpit five days later, blaming Satan for her kidnapping. Los Angeles, June 28th, Associated Press. Amy Simple McPherson yesterday laid her troubles for alleged abduction five weeks ago at the door of the devil, delivering her first sermon at Angela's Temple since her return. She declared before a densely massed congregation of 7,500 persons that because of her unyielding stand on moral questions, the devil had plotted her destruction and had caused the experience. Relating how she had taken a stand against dance halls, the drug ring, the teaching of evolution, (laughs) and how she had favored prohibition, the evangelist said, and so he, the devil, says to himself, If I could just get hold of Sister McPherson, if I could just get her away, that thing would crumble. Way all bless her heart. But Satan's work or not, Sister Amy's troubles did not end here. She was ordered to stand trial before a grand jury to face numerous charges related to criminal conspiracy, perjury, and obstruction of justice. And with all the counts, she was facing a maximum of 42 years in prison. Now, the prosecution would argue that the whole thing was a publicity stunt, and that in reality, she'd run away to a resort town cottage where she and a former employee had rented a cabin. They claimed to have proof that this guy, this former employee, eventually drove her to the border, dropped her off outside of Sonora, And that's where she walked a short distance and then feigned collapse. But none of that was ever proven in court. And on January 10th, 1927, because of a lack of evidence and even a, quote, bungling of evidence, all charges against her were dropped. My precious Lord. Even still, from this point on, The nation's media, who once described her as a miracle worker, for the most part, completely turned on her and made her into a sort of, like, tabloid star with constant headlines about her personal life and countless allegations of extramarital affairs. You can talk about me Just as much as you please I'll talk about you Down on my knee You can talk about me Just as much as you please I'll talk about you Down on my knee I ain't gonna grieve My lord anymore But although her relationship with the nation's media completely soured, Amy Semple McPherson's Foursquare Church continued to blossom. And for years to come, she herself continued to set crowd attendance records 
for her revival meetings in cities around the world and at home in Los Angeles. Amy Semple McPherson and the name Angela Temple has sometimes, I guess to our friend, seemed synonymous with trouble and with past. But now I think that the clouds have rolled away and the sun is shining, and now we're singing at the top of our voice. God bless you, my friends, one and all. That's Sharon's great-grand-aunt, Margie Sons. May she rest in peace. Margie Sons is Sharon's great-grandmother's sister, and she was an Emmanuel pastor. Jesus gets sweeter all the time. Oh, amen. I'm going to praise from her back, hallelujah, but I'm going to press But despite Emmanuel having this rich history of female leadership, by the time Sharon was growing up anyway, Aunt Margie, or they called her Sister Margie, was just a lingering reminder of the dominant matriarchy that once ruled this assembly. As I've mentioned previously this season, after Nina's death in 1975, all three of her successors to date have been men. And even though the new bishop overseers all support female pastors and preachers and all that kind of stuff, the overall power dynamic in Emmanuel has clearly shifted. Again, I had never given any real thought to this until analyzing this with you. <laughs> um, but I suppose that knowing that, because we have a lot of, of female pastors, and just being able to see that, I guess that whole quote-unquote representation matters, because it did. I never once thought, well, I can't do that. You know, I just, well, that needs doing, so I'm going to do it. You know, put my, put my britches on, although we didn't wear britches, we weren't allowed to wear britches. But, um, you know, put my work boots on and get it done. Coming up next on Heaven Bend. New sect of fanatics is breaking loose. They preach the wildest theories and work themselves into a state of mad excitement in their peculiar zeal. We'll explore the Azusa Street Revival, a revival that every Pentecostal church can trace their roots right back to. You have people of all races, all genders, coming to Azusa Street to have this experience of the Holy Spirit. But even though Azusa was a notably mixed-race event, it would be the trigger point for a painful racial split in the early Pentecostal movement. One of the reasons Pentecostalism spread as a global practice was precisely because of anti-Black racism. Also, still to come, the verdict in the David Terry murder and arson trial. The facts of this case were horrible. They were horrible. That only goes to show how good David was in his role as a pastor, that it was just unfathomable. Well, I guess the pastor killed him. Like that line of thought could not even begin to process with them because David had positioned himself as such a great spiritual leader. Both his parents had uh, mental health histories. 
that uh, were consistent with the diagnosis that he got. And Daddy said, I had no idea at the time that he was struggling with all of that, you know?